Today we're starting a five-week series leading up to Easter. Easter is April 1st, um, and we're going to be celebrating Easter. And when we were celebrating Christmas, Jesus' birth, we started in the beginning chapters of the Gospel according to Luke. Now to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection, we're going to start uh, go to the end of the Gospel according to Luke. Um, and these, really where we started today, Luke chapter 22, this is like Jesus' the final 24 hours of Jesus' life are going to happen in these couple chapters. It's going to be his 24 hours of his, last 24 hours of his life, followed by his resurrection from the dead um, three days later. And the name of this series is For You, For You. And we're going to discover today why um, that's the theme of these last couple chapters of Luke. This, e- this evening, we're going to get these front row seats to this really intimate setting, this final meal of Jesus' life. The, and this passage is all about preparation. Jesus wants the disciples to prepare this final meal, the Passover meal. As they're doing so, Israel's leaders are preparing to put Jesus to death. And they're working with Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, to do it. And all the while, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is about to happen. So this is all about preparation. But as Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples, their reaction is just totally out of sync with what he tells them is about to happen. And the big question this passage answers is this. How should we understand Jesus' death? How should we understand Jesus' death? That's the big question for this passage. How should we understand Jesus' death? And we're going to get six truths about Jesus' death that answer this big question. So let's look at the first truth in verses 1 through 6 of Luke chapter 22. Just to do a little bit of background, Jesus spent about three years doing public ministry. And he was, when he was around 30 years old, so you can remember that. Around 30 years old, he spent three years doing public ministry. And he told people this good news about the kingdom of God, um, which meant that God was coming back um, to rescue his people. He was going to rescue them from the slavery that they're in. And he was going to do this by sending a king who was going to set up God's kingdom on earth. It, wasn't, it was no longer going to be the people who enslaved God's people. It was going to be God's kingdom set up by his king who was going to set his people free. And as Jesus was proclaiming this good news, he was teaching people in ways they had never heard before. They're like, wow, he teaches with an authority. Like, we haven't, we haven't heard. This doesn't mean he was yelling. It just meant he kind of, like, was, knew what he was talking about in a way. And their teachers knew what they were talking about, but they were always relying on other human authors. And Jesus was like, no, this is what the Word of God says. This is what it's about. And he was healing people, and he was casting out demons. And you can imagine somebody who's healing people of sicknesses they dealt with for years. Like, that's going to attract a following. Lots of people started following Jesus um, whether they were like true like followers, true disciples, or whether they're just people kind of hanging around for like the benefits, or they're kind of interested in his teaching, but weren't, eh, I'm not really sure if I fully buy into that or not, or eh, it makes me feel good, but I'm not you know, ready to give my life to him. There's a lot of people following Jesus around over these three years. And finally, after three years, his followers think, okay, he's been talking about this kingdom. We think he's the king. We've told him, we think you're the king, and he hasn't denied it. He said, yeah, you've answered correctly. Um, and so now, finally, they're heading to Jerusalem, as we saw in our passage. They're going, well, a, a few, sorry, a few pa- chapters before our passage. They start to head to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This was like a national festival. All Everyone from the countryside, everyone from the nation of Israel would have come to Jerusalem, if they could afford it to, to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together um, at the capital city. And so they're kind of thinking um, that this is... This is the time. Jesus is going to take things over. There's going to be all these people there. We're in the capital, national festival. Um, and not only that, but Herod, um, Herod uh, was the actual king 
um, of Israel at that time, or at least part of Israel. But he was set up by the Romans, and so a lot of people thought, yeah, he's kind of like a puppet king. He kind of, you know, like gave himself to them, and he's not really ruling us, and they didn't like him as a king. And so he's going to be in town, and um, Pontius Pilate, you may have heard that before, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was tried by Pontius Pilate. Um, he's in town. He's the Roman governor over that region. So it's like, wow, we're heading there. Um, things have really gained momentum. We're heading up to the capital. Like, this is probably the time. They're pretty excited. He's going to make his move as king. And as Jesus came in Jerusalem on a Sunday, they didn't use that dating um, at that point, but Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a Sunday, um, and he's Everyone's super excited. He's coming from Jericho over to Jerusalem. And he's, as he's going, all of these people following, all these disciples line up and they start praising him as, for all the mighty works he's just done and praising God for, for what Jesus has done in their lives. And they start saying, like, he's the king. Blessed is the king who's coming. And he's coming humbly. And he's going to do all this stuff and set up God's kingdom. And so our story, that remember that happens. That he comes into town like that. But our, on a Sunday, our story picks up on a Wednesday, the very first verses are saying um, that it, this is probably happening on a Wednesday because it's right before the Passover, which would have happened on a Thursday. And on Wednesday, verse 2 tells us that the chief priests and the scribes are seeking for a way to put Jesus to death. And they want to do this because they're afraid of the people. A bunch of people, he's gotten the people's hearts. All Everyone's like going after him and they're believing in him and they kind of aren't in total agreement with what Jesus is teaching. And so they're kind of afraid that like, all these people are following him. We need to get rid of this guy. And throughout the week, Jesus and the religious leaders have had several disputes. And from day one, they did, had some interactions where they were like, we've got to get rid of this guy. We've got to put him to death. But they knew they needed to do it quietly because they're afraid of the people turning on them. If everyone, all these, you know, huge crowd of people that they don't want to lose as their supporters, they don't want to put the guy that they love to death in front of all of them because then all these people are going to be mad at them. So like, we got to do this quietly. You know, kind of like keep it under wraps. And verses 3 through 6 tell us that they find their window of opportunity. Judas, one of Jesus' closest 12 disciples, came under the influence of Satan and he met with the religious leaders to make a plan for him to betray Jesus. They're, and they're happy with this. They found their inside man and then they paid him the price he requested and then he begins looking for the right moment where they could get rid of Jesus quietly. And the big question this passage answers is how should we understand Jesus' death and as we summarize those verses, the first truth is this. Jesus' death was plotted by men. How should we understand Jesus' death? Jesus' death was plotted by men. The religious leaders in Jerusalem were seeking a way to get rid of Jesus. And Judas, one of Jesus' closest followers, closest friends, gives them their way. He betrays Jesus. And as the nation's preparing to celebrate Passover, which is a celebration of God's salvation, the religious leaders are preparing to kill somebody. You know, see the contrast there? Everyone's getting ready to celebrate salvation and there and, and a rescue, and these men are preparing a plot against Jesus' life. So the first truth is that Jesus' death was plotted by men, and we get two more truths in verses 7 through 23. Um, and Judas, he probably betrays, uh, this whole thing probably happens on a Wednesday, because then verse 12, 7 tells us that um, the day of unleavened bread came, with, on which the, uh, the Passover lamb would have been sacrificed, because at Passover, they sacrificed these lambs and ate the meal. And, and just a, a bit of background on the Passover, that um, I, I wanted to hopefully read the, if you want to find it, it's like Exodus, I think it's Exodus 12 or 10, um, somewhere in there, around there. I wanted to read it tonight, but there, you know, our passage, Luke passage was too, just too long. Um, but Jesus lived 
2,000 years ago, and then 2,000 years before he lived, uh, the people of Israel were in slavery. They went down to Egypt because of famine, and the Egyptian people, they kept growing in number. The Egyptian people first treated them kindly, then they got afraid of them and said, we got to do something about these people. So they enslaved them so before they like, got too powerful and like, took over Egypt. And so when they went down there, uh, they weren't expecting that at all. But after 400 years of slavery, God acted in a mighty way to rescue them. He recruited this guy named Moses to confront Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, and to, to lead his people out of slavery. And Pharaoh, he didn't listen. And so God sent these 10 plagues in the nation uh, of Egypt. It's sort of like, you know, here's Pharaoh's like, no, he's got this big wall up, and like, here's my battering ram. You know, here's whack one, you know, for the battering ram. I'm gonna, each plague was like, I'm going to get you to let my people go. And Pharaoh, he just didn't listen. So one after another, Moses kept demanding that Pharaoh let Israel go, and Pharaoh kept refusing until the 10th and final plague. And this plague targeted all the firstborn in Egypt, you know, your, your child who you gave birth to first, it targeted all the firstborn, not only the, all the human firstborn, but all the animal firstborn as well. God said, I'm going to strike down every firstborn in Egypt. And this is like, wow, that's kind of harsh. But it's like Pharaoh, he's just outright saying no to God. Like God's saying, this is what I want you to do. And he's just saying no. You know, what, that, that has consequences. Your parent, your kid flat out says no to you. That has consequences. And Pharaoh's just flat out saying, no, I'm not going to do what you're asking. And he says no to him nine times, uh, every plague. And then finally the tenth one, he's like, okay, it's going to get more severe now. And so they're getting punished for saying no. And every plague was a form of judgment against them. But Israel needed to do something special to be spared of this plague of judgment. Because, I mean, they've not been... They're not perfect people either. They should be judged just the same. They've said no to God plenty of times in their life as well. And so what they needed to do is each household needed to take a lamb and slaughter it and then take some of its blood and put it on the top of their doorpost. And then God says, when I come through town and I strike down all the firstborn, when I see the blood of the lamb, you will be spared from death. You will not get this judgment put upon you. So after this plague, every household without the blood of the lamb had someone dead in it. And Pharaoh finally lets God's people go. They left Egypt in what is called the Exodus. This is the you know, fame, really, any time um, people in Jesus' day, um, Jesus included, any time they thought of God's act of salvation, what's like the you know, greatest act of salvation? Oh, it's the Exodus. That's like what we're always waiting for God to do, to lead us out of slavery, to take us on an Exodus out of slavery. And so God told them after he brought them out, now you're going to celebrate the Passover every year to remember how I passed over your households and how the blood of the lamb saved you from the death of your firstborn, how I struck down the Egyptians. And after Passover, that was like one day, and then Passover came the Feast of Unleavened Bread um, for a week to remember how God took them out of slavery in Egypt. Wonders to remember him going over all the houses, um, seeing the blood of the lamb, and them getting spared from judgment. And the next was, remember how I took you out of slavery because of that event. So it was like this week, these two festivals um, last like a week, and they focus on God's rescue and salvation of them from Egypt. So then fast forward 1,400 years to the week Jesus has entered Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread with his disciples in the first century. On that Thursday, he sends his disciples to prepare the Passover meal. 
Um, so they'd have to go to the temple between 2.30 and 5.30 on a Thursday, um, get their uh, Passover lamb, which was getting slaughtered in the temple, get some wine, they'd need that for the festival, and get some unleavened bread, um, and also some bitter herbs for the meal. And then they also needed a place, and Jesus made the arrangements beforehand, doesn't tell us how he made it, but he's like, okay, here's the guy you got to go talk to, we've already made the arrangements, talk to him, and he's got the room for us all set up. And so they go in, they find the right house, and they get it all prepared. Um, probably Jesus made those special arrangements without everyone else knowing because he knows Judas is going to betray him. He doesn't want Judas to betray him and for him to get arrested during this Passover meal. He wants it to happen after that, so he keeps it all secret. And the Passover, it's normally celebrated with families, but Jesus celebrates it with his disciples, who he considers his family. Um, he says that anybody who does the will of God, um, that's who I call my mother, my brother, my sisters. And so this is intimate setting. They're all sitting around. It's a special meal. Because it's a special meal, they would have been, instead of sitting at a table, they would have been reclining, which we've kind of demonstrated before. I won't get the, on the floor, but it's like a lower table. You're kind of like leaning on your elbow, and so you're all kind of like leaning in, um, talking to each other, and it's like just a more intimate, more relaxed setting where you're all kind of um, <clears throat> leaning in like that. And so in verse 15, um, just a little ways into verse 15, he says this. In verse 15, he says this to them. I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, he knows he's about to suffer. He knows men are plotting his death. And he's earnestly desired to have this meal with them. To eat this final supper, this final meal with them. He wants to celebrate with them how God passed over their ancestors when he saw the blood of the Lamb. They were spared from judgment. And then how he led them out from slavery. And why does he want to do this? Because he says, this is the last Passover meal I'm going to celebrate until my kingdom is established in full. And then Jesus begins the meal with, with the traditional cup of blessing where they would drink wine. Um, you know, there's, they, they think there's maybe like three or four cups of drinking wine. I don't know, if, you know how much it was. It was more diluted than our wine today, but... Um, it was like three or four cups of drinking wine. The first one was like, let's bless the day. Like this, what a great you know, day God has given us. Um, so that would have been traditional. And verse 17 says this. This is how it happens. He took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Again, he indicates that this is his last Passover meal before the kingdom of God is fully established. And for anybody, some people kind of kind of try to take away Jesus' Jewishness. Jesus is fully Jewish. He's been celebrating Passover all the years of his life, and he's like, this is my last one. And he's, it's meaningful to him. He's I want to celebrate this festival with you. But then he does something out of the ordinary that the disciples would have never heard at any other Passover meal before. Verse 19 says this. He took the bread... When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. Jesus, he changes how they celebrate the Passover, and it's very significant how he does it. This meal is remembering God's act of salvation 
long ago, an act of salvation where he rescued them from slavery, an act of salvation where he did not bring judgment on their households like he did with the Egyptians, but he passed over them when he saw the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. An act of salvation where, uh, that we know as the Exodus because God made a way for all of his people to leave slavery. And what Jesus institutes here is the Lord's Supper, what we later call the Lord's Supper that we practice every week. And for Jesus' followers, it isn't the Passover we celebrate anymore, but the Lord's Supper. And what Jesus is telling his disciples as they remember God's act of salvation long ago is that God is doing a new act of salvation right now. And he's defining it for him. He's, Jesus has come to rescue people from slavery. Jesus came to give his life. So when God sees his blood, he passes over us in judgment. We don't get the death that we deserve. He passes over us when he sees Jesus' blood. Jesus came to start a new exodus because he's making a new way for people to be free from slavery. And that's all made possible by Jesus' death. Jesus says that this bread that he's breaking with his disciples represents his body given for them. He's giving his life for them. We all deserve God's judgment. We all deserve God's wrath. We all deserve death. When we trust in Jesus, God passes over us. And we do not receive death because he sees the blood of the Lamb. He sees the blood of Jesus. And the big question this passage answers is, how should we understand Jesus' death? The second truth is this. Jesus' death saves us from death. Jesus' death saves us from death. How should we understand Jesus' death? Jesus' death saves us from death. Because Jesus' death saves us from God's judgment. He was going over all the houses in Egypt because they all deserved <coughs> his judgment. The only way to be free of that judgment, the only way to be free from death was if you had the blood. And now Jesus is the one who's given his blood, given his life. But Jesus doesn't only save us from God's judgment. He saves us for relationship with God. Because then he goes on. He talks about the bread being broken. He says that the cup represents his blood poured out to form a new covenant. When God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt, it was for having a relationship with him. He didn't just say, like, okay, now you're free from slavery and, you know, just kind of figure out. He says, no, I want them to be free from slave from slavery so now they can have a relationship with me. And he says, I'm going to bring you to Mount Sinai and I'm going to enter into a relationship with you. I'm going to form this covenant. And I'm going to tell you, here's all the privileges of um, having a relationship with me. And here's all the responsibilities and here's what I want you to do with us. And covenants are things that define relationships. If you've ever been to a marriage ceremony or you're married yourself, um, you know that it's called the marriage covenant because you're saying, here's what I vow um, to you. And then the other person says, here's what I'm vowing to you. And it comes with privileges. It also comes with responsibilities. That's what vows mean. The other person's vows are you know, the privileges you get. There's lots of things you get from the marriage relationship. Um, but there also is a lot that you need to give to it. And Jesus says he's enabling a new relationship with God defined by what he has done for us. He's the one defining the terms. Because of what he gives us life, he now defines the new relationship terms between us and God. And the big question this passage answered is, how should we understand Jesus' death? And the third truth is this. Jesus' death makes a new relationship with God possible. Jesus' death makes a new relationship with God possible. Jesus' death saves us from the judgment we deserve so that God passes over us. And Jesus' death saves us 
for a new relationship with God. Now we live for God and we serve Him. That's why God always said, "This is, I want you to let my people go, Pharaoh, so that they can come and worship me. And that's what God does. He Jesus' death frees us from sin um, and from death and from Satan so that now we can come and worship God freely. Our hearts get set free so that we can worship Him. Jesus is preparing His disciples for what is about to happen. They prepared the Passover, but He's preparing them for what's about to happen. He's about to suffer. He's about to die. And He wants them to properly understand it all. Here's how you should think about this. Let me do this Passover meal with you. You know what this means. Let me redefine it so you can understand what's about to happen to me and what my death is doing. Twice he says that what is about to happen is for them. He says, my body is given for you. My blood is poured out for you. And what Jesus is about to undergo in the next 24 hours is for them. It was for us. It's for you. It's for me. And that's why we're calling this series for you. Because Jesus says what happens in these final chapters of Luke is for you. It's for us. As we prepare for Easter, we need to remember that. That Easter isn't just this you know, random day where the bunny comes and gives us candy and stuff. As fun as that is. But it's like this was celebrating something that Jesus did for us. And we're remembering it year after year. Jesus' death, he goes on to explain that this, my death is going to come out about because one of you 12 men sitting at this table with me, you know, imagine this intimate family setting. All of us are sitting around, you know, there's, I don't know, there's about 12 of us in here or so. And imagine I was like, you know, one of you is going to frame me for murder. And I'm going to go to prison. I'm going to be on death row in a couple days. Like, that's kind of what Jesus says. And you're all... They started asking among themselves, like, who's it going to be? Who's going to, you know, who's going to frame him? Jesus is like, one of you is going to betray me. You're at the table with me. And so they all um, have that in their minds, and the, which is understandable, which leads us to our fourth truth in verses 24 through 30. Because remember, <coughs> remember that scene we imagined in the beginning and the similarities with Jesus' mood here. He's gathered his disciples together to celebrate Passover, this intimate family setting. And for some time now, he's been telling them, I'm going to suffer and die uh, in Jerusalem. Um, and now he's, they're there. They're in Jerusalem. And he's saying, the time has come. What's about to happen is for you. And on the fi this final night of his life, he's, he's saying, I deeply desired to celebrate this meal with you. I did deeply desired to gather you up as a family and have this family meeting and eat the Passover with you and celebrate God's act of salvation. And maybe, maybe it was helpful for him to remember you know, this was God's act of salvation long ago. This is what it accomplished. And that's motivating him to say, I, I need to keep going forward with the purpose I've been given by my Father. Because soon he's going to be betrayed, arrested, denied, put on trial, crucified, die, and be buried. And knowing this is coming, he looks at his disciples and tells them, what is about to happen is for you. And what the disciples do next is totally out of sync with what Jesus has just said. As they try to figure out who will betray Jesus, verse 24 says this, A dispute also arose among them, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Jesus told them this is their last meal with him before he suffers. And he's going to die. And he's saying, I'm going to die for you so you can be saved from God's judgment on your sin and so you can have a new relationship with God. And what do they start doing? Squabbling about which one of them is the greatest. Who's, who's the best among us? Like the kids who start arguing about who gets what after they learn their parents are going to die. The disciples are totally out of sync with what they just heard. You know, same thing. If I was to be like, one of you is going to frame me, 
for murder. And I'm going to be on death row in a couple of weeks and I'm going to lose my life. Um, can you imagine if you started, you know, t talking about, like, well, you know, well, who's going to get Mitch's house? Who's going to get all his stuff? Who's going to get all his money? And it's like, I should probably get it. You know, it's like totally out of sync with what I've just told you. And so Jesus, he responds to them in verse 25. It says, he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one <clears throat> who serves. And Jesus has taught this same lesson um, various times in different ways using different illustrations this same one about kind of like the ruler what how, what do, how do kings think and how do servants think he's made this comparison at least one other time in his ministry um, <clears throat> and it seems I mean if you think about it like how, how hard is it for us to think like servants rather than like kings and then it shouldn't be surprising that we hear Jesus giving that same lesson to his disciples over and over and in different ways, like, no, you're thinking about it wrong. Stop thinking about your greatness. Stop thinking about you. Start thinking about other people. Like, we're going to live our whole lives hearing that lesson. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus has to talk about it a couple times. And we actually covered the other passage um, another time when Jesus teaches us in Matthew 20, a couple weeks back in our uh, the message on loving his servants back in January. So if you want a, a really deep... Um, lesson on this, I'd encourage you to look, go to that sermon, but um, we can't go too deep into it here now, but basically saying stop thinking like kings or like queens um, and start thinking like servants. Change your mindset. Stop thinking about what you're going to get from people. Stop thinking about your greatness and start thinking about how you can give to people. He's saying like, look, you need to have the humble mindset of being the youngest. Like you're the youngest, you don't just, you know, when it's kind of when we get older, we're like, you know, <clears throat> we, we maybe all think like, this is what our society tells us, like you put in your time at your job, then you get to retire, and now you've reached the top. And Jesus is like, no, don't think about yourself as the top. Don't think about yourself as like having arrived. Think about yourself as the youngest, you're humble. Think about yourself as a servant. Don't think about yourself as the one who's sitting at the table with people serving you, you're just reclining and relaxing. Like, look how I am among you. I'm the one serving. Who's, you know, and so look at my example. He points to himself as the model. And this is all after he says that I'm going to give my life for you. You know, you think that would click with them. I'm going to give my life for you. So what do you think my mindset is? You know, like, I'm here to serve. And so the big question this passage answers is, how should we understand Jesus' death? And the fourth truth is this. Jesus' death models true greatness. Jesus' death models true greatness. <clears throat> greatness in Jesus' kingdom comes by giving. His disciples have given up everything, and, he and they will give up more in the future. Like Several of them are going to give their lives just like Jesus did, um, which is why Jesus says, you're going to have a special place in my kingdom. You're my first followers, and I'm going to build the church through your witness about what I've done. And so he says, you're going to have a special spot in my kingdom. But they're still thinking about it in worldly terms. They think he's going to start this revolt in Jerusalem, take control, and they're going to be at his side when he does so. And they're going to rise to the top and have this greatness. And the disciples, they always seem to have this selective hearing when it comes to Jesus talking about his death. There's so many times when he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. And sometimes they're like, whoa, no you're not. And, you know, in this situation, he's like, I'm going to die. And then they're like, well, who's going to betray him? 
who's the great? You know, who, by the way, who's the greatest among us? Who do you think is like? What, what are you? Why are you even thinking about that? They seem to have this selective hearing. But Jesus knows the difficulties that are going to lie ahead for them, um, as well as for him. And that leads us to our fifth truth in verses 31 to 38 um, that reveals this. Um, Jesus, he now brings the attention where all these verses go together because it's all happening at this Passover meal, this you know family meeting with his disciples. And so Jesus brings attention to Simon, who we usually call Peter. And he tells him this in verse 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And the you, the first yous in verse, verse uh, 31 are more like y'alls. He's referring to all the disciples. He's saying, you know, Satan, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have y'all, that he might sift y'all like wheat. You know, maybe that's not, what would we say? Maybe use guys or something like that. But that's kind of what he, they're like, they're plural. And so he's talking about all the disciples. Satan doesn't want to stop at Judas. He wants all the disciples to abandon Jesus and betray him or deny him or something like that. Um, but then the you in verse 32 focuses on Peter. It goes back to a singular, and he talks to Peter alone. He says, Jesus, is, I prayed for you, Simon Peter, that your faith would not fail in the end. It wouldn't ultimately fail. And that once you turn back to me, that you would be able to strengthen the others. And then, of course, Peter's response is, I'll go anywhere. Like, if you even go to prison, if you even go to death, I'll follow you there. But then Jesus tells him, before this night is over, Peter, you're going to deny knowing me three times. You're going to say, I don't even know this guy. And it's like, from, you know, from this intimate family meal setting, I'm going to die for you. And Peter says, I will die. You know, I'll go as far as it needs to go. And then Jesus is like, you know, before this night is over, you know, before even 12 hours pass, you're going to deny even knowing me. Because Jesus has prayed for him, though, Peter is going to turn back to Jesus in the end and strengthen the others. And that's exactly what we see happening in the story of the church. This is just a great story for the power of prayer. God can keep someone from abandoning their faith through your prayers. Jesus says, Satan wanted to have you, for you to abandon your faith. And he says, I prayed for you. And so now you, you're going to go pretty far um, in one direction, but you're ultimately going to be brought back. And Jesus goes on to give instructions to all of them. Earlier in his ministry, he sent them out to spread the message of the kingdom in nearby towns. And he told them, don't take any supplies with you because people are going to welcome you and provide for you. They're going to give you food. They're going to give you lodging. And he asked them, did you lack anything? They say, no, we didn't lack anything. But now a change is going to be, take place because after his death, people are no longer going to welcome them. And so they need to provide themselves for themselves and they need to be on their guard. And he says in verse 37, well, why is this? He says in verse 37, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus knows he's going to be treated as a transgressor. He's going to be treated as a criminal, as a lawbreaker. He's going to be tried and he's going to put to death as a common criminal. As somebody, the ironic thing is his disciples all thought he was going to, to take over Rome. Um, and he was going to go kick out Rome. And he gets put on trial as someone who, or he gets put to death like someone who was actually doing that, who was trying to go and revolt against Rome. And so Jesus is tried like a criminal, and then he's killed like a criminal with the same shame, hanging on a cross, um, naked for everyone to see, so that Rome is saying, this is what happens to people who try to rise up against us. Do you want to be like them? No. So, you know, keep on your merry way, put your head down, and do what we tell you. So how do you think Jesus is saying, I'm going to be treated like a criminal, 
So how do you think people are going to treat you guys who are following me? And their response in verse 38 just totally misses the point. They say, well, look, Lord, here are two swords. But Jesus says, well, it is enough. And um, Jesus is kind of talking about sword. He's saying, like, if you don't have a cloak, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak to get one. He's kind of talking figurative, and we can tell that um, by other things that he says in other places. Because when they come to arrest him, um, they draw their swords, and they're like, should we get our swords out now, Jesus? And they draw their swords, and one person cuts off the ear, and Jesus says, no, no, stop this. Like, he doesn't want them to be fighting people. And so he's talking about it figuratively to tell them, like, be ready for opposition. Like, you know, you need to be ready for this. Like, people who are carrying swords, who are ready for a battle, because that's what's about to happen. But they're still thinking of Jesus' kingdom in the wrong way. They think we're going to go kick out the Romans. We're going to take out Jerusalem. We need swords to do that. And so um, they, they kind of, Jesus is talking about swords. He's like, well, we better take some inventory here. And so they feel like, okay, we got, we got two swords. Look, Jesus, we have two swords. And the NIV captures Jesus' response more forcefully. He kind of says, that's enough. You know, stop. You're thinking about it the wrong way. And so he kind of just cuts off the conversation. You know, somebody's, you know, is kind of just talking foolishly. And you say, that's enough. You know, that's not what we need to be talking about. That's not what you um, should be thinking about. The big question this passage answers is, how should we understand Jesus' death? The fifth truth is this. Jesus' death draws pressure and challenge. Jesus' death draws pressure and challenge. Jesus' death draws pressure and challenge. You can talk to almost anyone today. I'd venture, I mean, it's got to be above 90%. You could say to 90% of people today at least, what do you think about Jesus? And they would easily say, well, he was a good teacher, like he was a good person, like he did good things. But if then you try to tell them that Jesus died for their sins, so they could be free from God's judgment, free from death, so they could be free from <coughs> sin and have a new relationship with God, you'll soon discover that they're no longer nodding in agreement with you. If you say, Jesus was a good person, a lot of people, yep, I agree with that. Jesus died for you, so you can be free from your sin. Mm, the agreement quickly going to depart. Why? Why is that? It's because claiming that a Jewish guy 2,000 years ago was God in the flesh and then he died on the behalf of the saints for all mankind is a radical claim. And people, at the same time, people don't want to admit that they need someone else to get them to God. If you tell someone, you know what, you can't get to God by yourself. Like, oh, what are you talking about? Like, that's like, people don't like hearing that. Most Religion, other religions in the world, you have to do things to get to God. And if you tell somebody, you know, all that stuff you're doing to get to God, you're never going to get there. Like, sure, you think, you know, what do you, you think you're getting up to the top of the mountain? You'll never get to the top of the mountain. In fact, the more you do, the more you're displeasing God because you're just showing, because you're saying, like, I don't need you, God. I'm not going to depend on you. I'm not going to trust you. And so the more you try actually do it on your own, the further away you're getting. That's offensive to people. They do not, people, we don't like to be told, hey, you need somebody else to do something. We don't like being. We don't like being weak. We don't like being dependent. And that's why Jesus' death draws pressure and challenge. But the gospel isn't the gospel without Jesus' death. Maybe it's part of the gospel. It's okay to tell someone God loves you or to tell somebody, you know, what God um, has mercy on you, compassion on you. That's part of the gospel. But if we don't say, and Jesus died for you to free you from the penalty you deserve for your sin, then it isn't the whole gospel. It can never be the whole gospel without Jesus' death. Because the, the verse goes, for God so loved the world. You can tell people that. God loved the world. But if you don't get to, and he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. It isn't the full gospel. 
And this section also gives us our sixth and final truth. In verse 37, Jesus quotes a prophecy that was made 700 years, by the prophet, 700 years before him by the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, saying he's fulfilling this prophecy. Jesus is saying, you know that thing said 700 years ago? Can you imagine 700 years? That's like double our country's uh, age. <laughs> and he's saying like 700 years ago this thing was said, I'm here fulfilling it. And so the big question this passage answers is, how should we understand Jesus' death? And the sixth truth is this. Jesus' death was planned by God. Jesus' death was planned by God. There's no other way, because prophecy is about, hey, here's, well, usually prophecy is uh, speaking into the current situation, but sometimes it's God making promises for the future. And this, this particular promise comes out of Isaiah 53. If you're familiar with that passage, it's a very famous passage, often gets read um, at Easter or Christmas of how Jesus came, we're all like sheep going astray, and Jesus has come to, we're, because of our wound, or I can't remember all of it, but he's stricken for us, he's died because of us, he gave his life for us, and Jesus, you know, for that to happen, for Jesus to say that, God had a plan, where he's saying, I'm going to send someone to do this, 700 years later, here he showed up. And this may seem a little contradictory, our first truth, which was, Jesus' death was plotted by men, you, know, you could also say it was planned by men. Um, and you could also even say it was plotted by Satan. Satan's the one who brings Judas under his influence. And so which is it? Is it plotted by men or is it planned by God? And the answer is both because the Bible often holds two truths together. Human beings are responsible for their actions and God is in control of everything that happens. Human beings are responsible for their actions and God is in control of everything that happens. And the religious leaders and Judas are morally responsible for Jesus' death. Jesus says, woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. At the same time, Jesus' death is part of God's divine plan to rescue us from our sin. And it says, Genesis 50, verse 20, verse 20 says, They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So as we think about how this applies to our life, we can sum up what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples um, with just this simple sentence. Um, know that Jesus' death can change everything for you. Jesus' death can change everything for you. Jesus' death rescues you from God's judgment. Jesus' death rescues you from the penalty for your sin. Jesus' death makes a new relationship with God possible. Where once you were separated from him and you had no possibility of getting close to him, there's no amount of works or good deeds that could change you being far from him. Jesus can bring you close. And Jesus' death can completely change your standing with God. We all stand before him guilty and sinful and, and dirty and wretched. But Jesus gave his life for you. And believing that can change your whole life. But even though this is true, we will leave here tonight and this week and we will struggle to live in light of this truth. This week you will do and say things that are completely out of sync with what we have just heard. Just like the disciples squabble about greatness right after Jesus says, I'm going to die for you. Our lives often are out of sync with what we say we believe about Jesus. Even after hearing that Jesus died for you later th tonight or later this week, you will act in ways totally out of sync with that truth. And the conversation Jesus has with his disciples is instructive for us. If we truly believe that Jesus died to, so we could be rescued and restored, then the least of our concerns should be squabbling about who's the greatest, who's the best, worrying about status from other people, worrying about what other people think of us, worrying about worldly greatness. When you realize that Jesus has given his life for you, 
He says you'll stop being concerned with getting and you'll be more concerned with giving. That's the mindset change. The disciples are thinking about what are we going to get? Who's the greatest? Who's going to be at Jesus' side? Who's going to get the most honor? They're thinking about getting. We want to get, get, get. Jesus says when you understand what my kingdom is about and how I came to serve and give my life, you'll be more concerned with giving now. Because when you realize that you've been given the greatest gift of all, the, we'll, you'll realize that there's nothing more to get. But when we forget that Jesus died for us, we try to get from others and from other things what we've already been given by Christ. And there's at least two ways we try to, we try to get what we've already been given. The first is, um, remember this truth. Because Jesus died for you, you don't have to get approval from other people. Because Jesus died for you, you don't have to get approval from other people. Because Jesus died for you, you don't have to get approval for other from other people. Because we all have this aching desire for approval. You want to hear good job from your spouse or your coworkers. You want your company to recognize what you are worth to them. You want to hear, I'm proud of you from your parent. You want your spouse to appreciate everything that you do for your family, whether it's in the home or out of the home. The problem is we were not made to get our ultimate approval from other people. Approval is about proving ourselves. We want to prove ourselves to others so that they approve of us and give us their approval. The good news is that you've been given approval because of Jesus. You don't have to prove yourself to God. You don't have to prove yourself to other people. God has given us an approval rating beyond our wildest dreams. It's because Jesus died for you, and if you, if you trust in him, you can now call God your Father. And The love that he has for you is deeper than anything you can measure. He loves you with the same love that he has for Jesus, his eternal son. That's what he tells us in, in the book of John. And John, God's opinion of us should be the most weighty opinion of all, of all. Because of Jesus, we already know God's opinion of us. He loves us. He gave his life to, for us. He, God proves his love for us and that he, Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. And second, because Jesus died for you, you don't have to get security from other people or other things. You can say, because Jesus died for you, you don't have to get security from other things. We often seek security through control. When we're in control, we feel secure. When we feel out of control, we feel insecure. Maybe you feel the need to always have your kids perfectly behave. If they're perfectly behaving, then I'm feeling secure. People aren't looking at them. People aren't looking at me. They're doing what I said. I'm feeling secure. Everything is going how I want it to. Or you're always telling your spouse things you want them to do, and then you're getting mad when they don't do it. You want your spouse to be under your control. You want them to be doing what you said. You want them to be doing what you expect. And so you get angry when they don't do it. You feel secure when your spouse is doing things. Or maybe you always feel anxious and worried about money because having money <coughs> makes you feel in control. I have it there. It's ready for me to use when I need it. And I feel in control when I have lots of money. That makes me feel secure. Or maybe you always want to be in control of other people's opinions of you. And so you avoid doing anything that would cause a negative reaction. Or you're always trying to make yourself seem great in other people. You're, you know what? I'm going to kind of talk about all the good things in my life. You know, like, kind of like my highlight reel. And not share any of the bad things. Because I want to control what these people think of me. I want them to think that I'm all together. That I'm all good. That everything's going well for me. Or you just, you know, if you do something wrong, you're like, oh, i got to make up for that. So I can, you're like, okay, now they have a negative opinion of me. i got to do a bunch of things so they have a good opinion of me. And you feel secure when people's opinion of you is in your, in your control. And the good news is that you've been given ultimate security because of Jesus. 
If you've trusted in Jesus, he purchased for you a, a hope that can never be taken away, a love you don't deserve, status that you did nothing for, and a relationship with God you can never earn. Now, all this is given as a free gift, and if it's given to you because of nothing you did, then there's nothing you can do to have it taken away. All it requires is you know, admitting your dependence, your neediness before God, and saying, I surrender to you and I trust in you. And not believing we've already been given these things, I think is a, a big reason that we struggle to share our faith because we think like, what if that person's opinion of me changes? I need to have security in their opinion of me. Or I just like, I don't, I feel out of control. If I talk to them about God or I talk to them about a subject that I don't know how they're going to react, I just feel out of control. I need want to control it. I don't know what's going to happen. I feel out of control. What's going to happen to me? Or what if they don't approve of me? I, what if I talk about God and they're like, you know, I think that's all kind of a bunch of garbage and weird. And it's like, oh, now they, now they think less of me. I don't have their approval. and I, So we don't say it, and we just can hide that from people. Um, but Jesus, uh, we maybe think about this question. How can we worry about approval when we have, we have God's love for us because of Jesus' death? Or how can we worry about security when we have everything Jesus has given us because of his death? Because God proves his love for you, his care for you, um, his protection over you, his, his desire for your well-being, because he died for you. you think about um, the new relationship terms, when a marriage covenant is formed, you say, for better or for worse. Well, uh, God has already proven that he's in it for worse. Maybe some of us, we wonder, like, we say that to each other, but, you know, can the pers other person really be trusted? Like, what's really going to happen? Will you really be with me if I, like you know, have this horrible disease and I lose my legs and I can't talk anymore. Like, will you be with me for that worse? And it's like, we don't know with another person. It's like, it's, we don't know the future. With God, he's already gone to our worst. He knows all of our worst and he's paid for all of it. He's gone and died for us. He's pr proven that he's with us for better or for worse. So just imagine a family where the husband and wife are more concerned with giving rather than with getting. Imagine a workplace where each employee was more concerned with giving rather than getting. Imagine a church where each person was more concerned with giving rather than getting. And so for this week, here's some things you can think about. This is, if you remember the loving of servants um, message, this is kind of what we thought about then, but we always need to think about this. Who is someone you normally seek to get something from? You know, who's that person in your mind? Think of that name. Maybe write it down. Who's someone that you always seek to get something from? And then, how has Jesus already given that to you? What's the thing you want from them? How has Jesus already given that to you? And then to put it into action, how can you give to them instead of getting from them? You know, who's the person I always seek to get from? What's, that, who's that, what's the name of that person for you? And what are you trying to get from them? How has Jesus already given that to you? And how can you give to them rather than trying to get? As we go through this message, or this series, we're going to see Jesus go through a lot um, leading up to Easter. And he says it was all for you. It's all for me. It's for each of us. It's for all of us. He died and he gave his life for each of us so we might be rescued from our sin, rescued from judgment, and so we might live a new life and be renewed in God's image. Let's pray.